Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. This episode, another in our series responding to COVID-19, was recorded on Wednesday the 1st of April 2020. I talked to Helen Alderson, Head of Delegation for the UK and Ireland, about the work of the Red Cross in responding to the crisis and its work in prisons around the world. My name is Helen Alderson, and I'm the Head of Delegation for the International Committee of the Red Cross here in London. And can um, you tell us what the Red Cross actually does and why, why you were set up? Sure. So the, the Red Cross is, 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 uh, is actually quite a complicated organisation. We have been in existence for over 150 years. And the origin of that is in the Battle of Solferino, during which a Swiss businessman, a man called Henri Dunant, was actually travelling in the area of, of Lombardy, as it happens, which is, of course, in the news today. And he saw the devastating impact on the battlefield of, uh, of conflicts. And it was at a time, this was put, situate this back to sort of Florence Nightingale type of time, there were no um, medical facilities, uh, soldiers were left to, to die on the battlefield, corpses were not picked up and so on. And so he then organised relief for that in terms of being able to um, evacuate the sick and the wounded and also uh, bodies. And it's extraordinary because today, still in Solferino, there are sometimes mortal remains that appear in fields and that farmers uh, uncover from that period of over 150 years ago. And uh, Henri Dunant, who was a businessman from Geneva, came away from that and wrote sort of a seminal book called uh, Memory of Solferino. And in that, he had two ideas which were at the origin of the Red Cross and Red Crescent movement. The first one is that in time of peace, there should be one organization, an international organization that would be neutral and impartial and that could act as a neutral intermediary, talk to both sides in a conflict at the time Conflicts were international wars between two states. We can come back to that. And this was the idea behind what became then known as the International Committee of the Red Cross, which is the organization that I work for, that is an, an international organization based in Switzerland and that works to provide protection and assistance to victims of wars and armed conflicts. And the second idea that he had was that actually for each of the armed forces, there should be created again in peacetime an auxiliary service, a medical service at the time, who would follow the armies into battle and then would be able to treat the wounded, 
uh, evacuate the uh, the wounded and also bodies, but they would then make sure that there was that these people were not left to die on, in, on, on the battlefield. And this is what became then the each country has a national organization. And what I should say is that uh, at the time, the world was a smaller place. There were fewer countries in the world, obviously. And um, the, one of, the, one of the, the questions that we're often asked is, OK, what is the Red Cross? And we also hear of the Red Crescent. What is the Red Crescent? So when there was the decision to create the International Committee of the Red Cross and then also the national organizations in each of the countries of the world, in respect of the origin of Henri Dunant, the Swiss flag was taken, the reverse of the Swiss flag, in fact. So the Swiss flag is a white cross on a red background, and the emblem that was taken for this new organization was a red cross on a white background. And this was adopted by a number of countries. The United Kingdom at the time was one of the first countries that created its own National Red Cross Society. Fairly quickly, the, the Ottoman Empire decided that they themselves also wanted to create its own organization, but felt very much ill at ease to adopt a cross as the emblem. And so they adopted the crescent, the red crescent. So in fact, that's why you find around the world some countries that have red crosses and other countries that have red crescents. This, we are not at all a religious organization, but obviously these emblems, as we call them, have a, a, a sort of a, a religious symbolism around them, which is why there's a red cross and a red crescent. And so in each country around the world today, practically each country, there are 192 national organizations that work locally. And you see the, the work of the British Red Cross here in the United Kingdom. Um, and then the International Committee of the Red Cross that works globally in countries in conflict, whether it's international wars or internal wars or situations of violence. And we have each of us, our own, our own boards, our own structures, but we share a number of things. We share principles, and I can come back to those principles, and we share statutes. We obviously share the emblem, the Red Cross or the Red Crescent, but we're independent organizations with separate boards. Okay, and it's a fully voluntary organisation. I'm not fully, fully, but is the idea that you're sort of garnering the sort of enthusiasm and passions of volunteers to work on the front line? Sure. So it's it's both voluntary and professional. In fact, that there, there are both. Um, so. At, at the national level, there are huge, there's huge cause of volunteers, and, and and you see them here, here in Britain, um, in for example, in in Syria, a lot of the images just that one sees on the news of the Syrian Red Crescents and people who are ambulance drivers and first aiders and, and so on, most of them are volunteers. So there are millions of volunteers around the world who work for the Red Cross and the Red Crescent, but there are also professional organizations. So we have staff um, that are staffing our offices. And for the, for the International Committee of the Red Cross, in fact, we ourselves don't have volunteers. We are all professionals. We have a staff of 20,000 people around the world in 90 countries. But wherever we work, we work very closely with the national organization and very closely with their volunteers. OK. And I also noted on your website that um, the Red Cross is a worldwide movement. And it, of course, got me thinking that we are in the grip of a worldwide pandemic. And I wonder if ever before your work has ever taken on such a meaningful global sense. 
do you see what I'm trying to say? I mean, I, I know you've always worked globally, but, you know, when I watch the news in the evening and reflect on how this virus is jumping from country to country and sort of ripping through different societies, you know, this really is a global problem in a way that no one can switch off to. I agree. And to answer your question, I mean, I, I really don't think so. I don't think that there has ever been a situation where, as, as, as a movement, we've had something, uh, such a huge crisis that we've actually all had to face, whether we're the Chinese Red Cross or the ICRC or the um, Venezuelan Red Cross or Syrian Arab Red Crescent. I think we're, we're, we're all at different stages, I think, of how we're able to deal with this. And we have different capacities. But this is something that I think that for all of us is, is a massive challenge. And on the other hand as well, that, that there is a huge strength in the fact that we, we, we are a movement, we are a very much of a grassroots movement with volunteers that come from and work in every single community around the world. In most countries around the world, the national organisation, National Red Cross or Red Crescent, is part of the first responders to this crisis. Could you paint a picture, perhaps, of what you're seeing or what you're hearing from the different prisons that you work in, in the different countries around the world? The International Committee of the Red Cross works in prisons uh, all around the world. And in fact, last year we visited over one million detainees in 90 countries around the world. And the reason that we've done this is based on our mandate to provide protection and assistance of people who are caught up in conflict. So initially, the ICRC visited prisons, prisoners of war having been given a mandate by the Geneva Conventions. And of course, now we visit detainees in prisons all around the world where they have been detained for one reason or another because of situations of violence or conflict or whatever. And I think what, what's important, maybe just a few words on what, why we do these visits and also how we carry them out, because I think we're probably an organisation that does this differently from many of the other bodies that visit uh, prisons. So the, 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 the initial objective of visiting prisons is basically to ensure that the conditions of detention and the treatment of people who are in these prisons is satisfactory and is in accordance with sort of international regulations. Uh, and this is important because in a number of countries, uh, people sometimes disappear in prisons. Uh, prisons are places where there is uh, ill treatment or torture and conditions of detention uh, are far from satisfactory, whether it's concerning uh, health, food, water and so on. And, and also one, one of the big areas of focus that we have for prisons is maintaining family links, ensuring that people who are detained are able to continue to have relations, uh, whether it's through visits or Skype or whatever, with their families. The work that we do is, is carried out on a, on a confidential basis in the sense that we talk to the detaining authorities, we talk to the, to the prisoners, we repeat the visits and we ask to see the entire place of detention. And then we provide a confidential report to the detaining authorities about what we see and recommendations for improvement and so on. And the, the confidential aspect about this is actually very important because this is what enables us, we believe, to um, affect change in a, in a, in a private dialogue, um, it's what enables us to continue to have access. So I guess there's always two ways of sort of trying to bring about change, isn't there? There's the sort of going in hard and saying, well, we're going to do a big splash about how badly you're treating your prisoners and how rancid it is inside, or you go mm -hmm. in 
like you guys do, a bit more softly and you work with them behind the scenes, but they know they're not going to be publicly embarrassed. Exactly. And, and one is not contradictory necessarily with, with the other. But our, our, our mode of work is very much we, we develop this dialogue of trust with the detaining authorities, as well as with the prisoners, in fact. And we believe that this is actually added value that, that we can actually provide. It's also what ensures that we're able to go back again into the prisons again and again. And I think this, this is one of the, the elements that's important about the, about the ICRC is, is our neutrality and our impartiality. And I think, you know, ICRC delegates were not were not all born neutral. And sometimes, for sure, we come out of prisons and we just like to ring up a journalist and tell them what we've seen. Um, but we don't actually do that because we have to go back again uh, yeah. the, the following day or the following week and, and try and affect that change um, from, from within. Do you find that, yes, um, that's usually quite uh, an effective method for change? Yes, we do. We do. I mean, obviously, there are, there are places and times when we you know, feel a deep sense of frustration because things are not changing, whether it's in the, in the work that we do uh, inside places of detention, so intramuros, but also maybe in situations of conflict where, you know, violations of international humanitarian law are happening and, and civilian populations are suffering very much. So, of course, there, there are many, many places and many times when we, when we do feel frustrated because the change is not coming uh, as fast or in the way that we would like it to. But on the whole, this is where we really do find that uh, we can be most impactful. And what are you seeing from the prisons around the world at the minute with the outbreak of this horrific virus? So we're very worried. And in fact, again, as I said, it's important to realise that we work in conflict situations. So these are countries that are at war. So with health systems that have been ravaged by war, people have been uprooted, water, soap, medication, the kind of basic things that we're able to manage here in, 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 sort of in the community. They don't exist in the community in these countries. They exist even less, obviously, in, in places of detention. And in places of detention, people are more vulnerable, where, as, as you know, in many places around the world, there are huge problems around overcrowding, poor ventilation, hygiene, uh, not sufficient access to healthcare. In many countries, um, it's... The family that comes and visits and provides, for example, food and nutrition and so on. So, um, in the word of our, the words of our, our president, the potential impact of uh, coronavirus in prisons is really our worst nightmare at the moment. In prisons and also, say, in in, in camps, in, in camps of displaced people. So we're we're actually extremely worried um, about this. There are. Some places where there are that we we visited where there are already cases, uh, some where there aren't yet. But um, this is a big area of focus for us is to work with prison authorities in many countries around um, putting in place certain measures, um, uh, trying to you know that there are a whole list of and we can go through those a whole sort of list of things where we're trying to help prison authorities in order to prepare if and when it comes because I think we one can probably assume that as it reaches certain countries and we have low rates that have been reported so far in places like uh, sub-Saharan Africa or the Middle East but when it does get there of course one assumes it will also go into prisons. 
Well, exactly. And, you know, there's some very obvious reasons why most of the guidelines that are set out by Public Health England, <coughs> for example, can't be followed. These are not places, as you say, where you can wash your hands easily. And if you find water, you probably won't have the soap. And if you have the soap, exactly. water, you probably won't have a clean towel to dry your hands on, if a towel at all. You um, don't have the personal protective equipment. Um, you cannot possibly stay two meters away from people. If you're mm -hmm. handcuffed to them as staff, if you're doing bed watches, a lot of staff are over the age of 60. A lot of the prisoners themselves will be vulnerable, will have underlying health problems. So surely, if the numbers that we're seeing around the world in the general population are horrifying. I imagine that the numbers of deaths that we'll see in the prisons will be treble the amount. Or am I being dramatic? No, no, I, I don't think you're being dramatic at all. Um, I think we, we, you know, obviously we, we don't know yet. Some of the experience that we have had, obviously, is a very different situation. We take, for example, Ebola, notably in um, West Africa or in, in uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo. Sanitation measures that were put in place with prison authorities did help in terms of preventing, to a certain extent, the entry of Ebola or, for example, cholera into these prisons. But this is obviously on a slightly different scale now. And I agree, a lot of, a lot of prisoners already um, vulnerable. TB is something that uh, is rampant in many prisons, for example, also linked to, to, to the question of, of proxenity. So there are, there are a whole number of areas that we can that we can work on with prison authorities to try and mitigate the um, the impact on prisons but I think um, there is no way of preventing completely the entry of coronavirus into prisons and also yes you can have prisoners isolating perhaps but we know that prisons are overcrowded not only in our country but they're so much more overcrowded in countries around the world you know often dormitories full of inmates um, so it's just not possible that many inmates will be able to self-isolate um, and then you've also got yes you can close the prison down to family and friends which then you worry about the violence that will cause when people are feeling so desperate when they haven't seen their children and their loved ones but then you can't stop staff from coming in and out because you need the staff to be there. So in England, as of Monday, we had 7,000 prison staff off self-isolating. That's 12% of the workforce. At what point does someone say the system just simply cannot stand up to this level of crisis? And then my second question would be, is that when the army comes in, or does the army not always come in to help or what the hell happens, basically? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'm not sure I can answer the question as to when, when does the army come in, when does the army not come in? Because that, that also has other repercussions. And, and you're right to mention the question of, of, of tensions that can exist in, uh, in prisons. And we've seen that, um, for example, there have been riots in uh, certain prisons in Colombia already um, because of the situation there and the, and the, closing, the, the, the closing down of workshops, access to the open air, uh, yeah, the difficult, same as difficult, 
it, yeah, exactly. Not being able to have showers, to share showers and so on. And in the north, as you mentioned, in the northern region of Italy, in Lombardy in, in particular, this is something that the prison health authorities are, are having real difficulty um, grappling with. So, I mean, th there are a number of things that uh, still do need to be put in place, even though obviously that it's, 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 not, it's not ideal. I mean, the, the question of, of how, how it comes into prisons, obviously, is, is in, so prison staff, um, family visitors, visiting lawyers as well, new arrivals. Some of the things that we're working on, for example, is to is the medical screening of people who are coming in and out of prisons, including new arrivals. Um, we're working in places like Afghanistan, for example, to set up some prevention measures, so hand washing stations where they just don't exist. And these are not just for the detainees because they don't exist either for the for the guards or for delivery personnel or people who have to come in and out. We've looked at also whether it's potentially possible to build isolation areas uh, in certain prisons for prisoners who are suspected or confirmed to have COVID themselves. So we've done this again in Afghanistan and a number of, of African countries. Distribution of basic materials, so PPEs, soap, other hygiene materials, and this kind of thing as well. There's also, I mean, we've, we've, we've seen it again also in this country, uh, simply the, the training of staff, what needs to be done, how you need to handle things, how you disinfect, and even how one washes one's hands. I think one of the things that's coming out of this is that we will all know how to how we to wash our hands properly. Whereas yeah. before, we basically, I think most of us probably had no idea. So there's um, there, there, there are a lot of things that uh, one can put in place to at least mitigate the impact of that. But family visits is an interesting one as well, because this is so fundamental to the well-being of, um, of detainees. And uh, in most countries around the world, and it'll, get, it'll, it'll happen as well, I think in those countries um, that uh, sort of the, the COVID virus hasn't hit as strongly as, as elsewhere, is family visits are being, are being stopped. There are other ways to maintain contacts with families. And, and the ISIS has done this in, in uh, has been doing this for a long, long time in many countries around the world, whether it's through phone calls, whether it's through Skype, this kind of thing, something that doesn't even exist very much in, in this country. So these are measures that are really important to be able to to put into place. And then I think there's there's a potential impact as well on the families themselves who are no longer able to have that contact and to go and visit their relatives that are, that are detained. So yes, that there, there are a number of things that can be put in place. Disinfection in some in some places we're actually carrying out uh, or providing the equipment to prisons to be able to do disinfection, fumigation campaigns, all of this kind of thing as well. And in certain African countries, one example is Central African Republic, we are actually bringing food into the prisons because, again, this was something that families, when they visited, they brought food in. And now, of course, they're no longer able to do that. Uh, what, one thing that you mentioned was, was uh, prisoners particularly at risk. In many countries, there's an aging prison population particularly in, in, in high security prisons, so, so where there are long sentences, is to be able to, a bit like in, in the wider community, to be able to identify who those at-risk population of, of detainees are and to take specific measures for them. Absolutely. And, but, you know, one of the difficulties is, I was talking to someone the other day and the conversation turned to a sick prisoner who had to go out but then they have to go out usually handcuffed to someone 
So talk mm -hmm. to me about social distancing yeah. when you're having to be so close to someone. It's just not feasible, is it? No, it's 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 not feasible, and I think that's the question: is that all the sort of sanitary means that can be carried out, social distancing in prisons is is practically impossible. I agree. And so in California, I noticed yesterday, I think it was, they are releasing 3,500 inmates early. Yesterday, we had the welcome news that 35 pregnant women um, were being released from our prisons here in England, um, because there's no female prison in Wales, that's why I say just England, um, which strikes me as an exceptionally small number, but at least it's the mm -hmm. start. I think there's a long way to go. And then in Iran, they released all of their yeah. prisoners, did they not? They released a great many. One important measure is, is release of prisoners, um, looking at, uh, depending on sort of the length of sentencing and so on. That has to be done, I think, with great precaution, because also you need to be able to, once people go in, back into the community, is to make sure that um, they are able to um, take the necessary measures in terms of uh, personal hygiene, prevention measures, social distancing in the community. And I think this is also one of the, the real worries that, that we have in countries that are grappling with conflict beyond the prisons is that uh, if you take some of the camps in, uh, for example, in northeast Syria, um, there is, there is no capacity for people to wash their hands regularly, to wash themselves regularly, basically. There is overcrowding. People are, are not able to carry out the social distancing as well. So the, the impact of, of the crisis in those countries that don't have the kind of health capacity that we have here could be very, very worrying. And in addition to which, years of conflict have lowered the resilience, the sort of the natural resilience of uh, people who are living in these places. They are somewhat, sometimes they are uprooted, they are displaced, they are in, pushed back into poverty um, because of conflict and therefore much more difficult for them to be able to, to cope with this. And in our country, in well, I'm sort of talking about England and Wales, I guess, because I'm talking about um, all of this through the lens of justice, um, So, which is why I'm talking about England and Wales in particular. But we have a public health strategy, right? And I do other countries have public health strategies or is it patchy? Because what I'm thinking is, where does the criminal justice system sit within a public health strategy because it seems to me and i'm certainly no expert i'm just looking in trying to work out where the justice system sits within all of this that you have all these different people coming in and out of prisons yes less so now but the staff are still going in and out you know we know that they're exceptionally vulnerable places when it comes to sort of contraction of this virus so i'm i guess my question is is there not a huge public interest and should there not be a transparent strategy around the criminal justice system when it comes to our public health strategy? Yes, so de definitely it's patchy, um, for sure. And I think that's also the difficulty of uh, the places where the ICRC is working is that uh, in most of them there there is no public public health strategy in many places where maybe there was there is no longer so just to give you an idea if i if you take a country like yemen or, or syria over 50 percent of of uh, health facilities 
have been destroyed over the last two years. And those are just the, the, the facilities. Doctors and medical staff have left. Equipment is not getting in. So there really is no way for these countries to, to respond in, in, in any kind of meaningful way. So these kind of strategies just do not exist. And if they did in many places, they don't anymore. And I yeah. think that's where it's also really important. And the, this is some of the discussions that um, the ICRC and, and uh, also the British Red Cross have been having with, with the government here, and for example, with, with DFID, is that, um, as you said, this, this knows no border. And there is a responsibility for also those countries that do have the means, obviously, to focus on and to put huge and massive means into dealing with the question here, for example, here in the UK. But also, if there aren't similar kinds of means or a, or a very joined up international response to help those countries that don't have the capacity, this will come back to bite, will do more than bite us, I'd say, but will come back to bite us very, very quickly. And I think the, 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 the response and the discussions that we've been having with the government here, they are very, very, very much aware of this. But obviously, it's a very big ask and it's very complicated to put into place. Well, it is, isn't it? I'm also conscious that you're neutral, independent and impartial. And so um, I always find it quite difficult to be neutral, independent and impartial, but I'm doing my best. But, uh, but I guess, you know, what I'm wondering is prisons and detention are very political places. You know, they're sort of built with politics in their sort of fabric, aren't they? No government really likes to talk about prisons because, you know, the public think one thing and then there's the right thing to do, but the right thing isn't a popular thing to do. So I think um, I'm not going to ask you to comment on this, actually. It's just more of a sort of a statement I wanted to make because now we're facing an unprecedented crisis. And I think that politics needs to be sort of removed almost from it and people's health needs to be first and foremost. No, I, I agree. And in fact, I'll make a comment, sorry, about, about the question of neutral, impartial and, and independence and what that actually means. And we, we work in a totally political environment. So we are probably the most political of the non-political organisations. Right. That there are because we have to, we work with governments we work with what we would call non-state armed groups some of them are on terrorist lists we need to engage with all of these people otherwise we can't do our work and we can't we can't have any kind of access i think maybe just a, a couple of comments one what does it mean to be neutral impartial and and independent so it's these are we call them fundamental principles, but they're not sort of lofty ideas that come down from on high and that we uh, then just have to uh, adopt. They're, they are basically tools. They're part of the toolbox that enables us to work. So neutral means actually not taking sides in, in hostilities or not engaging in political or religious or racial or whatever uh, kind of debate. It doesn't mean that we sit back and just don't say and do anything. So being neutral is actually very active, but it means that we cannot engage uh, with one side or another because then we will not have the trust of, of, of the other side, if you want. And impartial is is um, is what doctors are. I mean, it's 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 no discrimination. It's basically acting and guided solely by needs. 
So uh, where there is a need, that's where we have to be. And if that need is more on one side or on another uh, in a conflict, that's not the problem. That's where the needs actually are. And independence is being independent as already political or economic or financial and military pressure. So it's, it's a fine balancing act. It's what guides us and helps us really in being able to carry out um, our work. Um, so, um, and then the, the other comment that I just wanted to make is that this is a huge public health crisis, but it's actually more than just a public health crisis. It's, it's a societal crisis. Uh, and I think as we've seen with, with other issues, with Ebola, but maybe even going back to HIV, at the beginning of HIV AIDS epidemic, that we should be very careful not to have a sort of a vertical approach and deal with this as sort of disease by disease, that the, the impact is cumulative, it'll be very long term, and we're seeing what's happening to, to, to people's businesses, and so on. So it's much more than, um, it's much more than a public health crisis. And I think one of the, the, the really interesting issues and the sort of the, the, the proof of, of, um, of how we're managing this is actually, once we get beyond the crisis phase, then the measures that are being taken place afterwards to ensure that vulnerabilities of those populations that are particularly vulnerable, whether it's for socioeconomic reasons, whether it's for health reasons, that these are actually being addressed ahead of time. So if our listeners want to learn more about the Red Cross and the work that you do, um, and specifically maybe around detention and what's happening with this virus, where should they be directed to? So I would suggest that they go and look on our website. It's uh, very easy to find, icrc.org. And um, in there, there's actually, when you go straight onto it, there's a lot about the work that we're doing now with uh, in regards to the coronavirus crisis. And also by putting in detention activities or prisons in the search uh, function of the websites. There are some very interesting information, but also some more academic papers that have been written for the International Red Cross Review that can be accessed through our website. Okay, brilliant. Well, Helen, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for your time and good luck with the rest of your work. Thank you. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review, and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes 
without the ads. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. The London Podcast Company. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.